Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Good morning. My name is Rabbi Daniel Sher. For those of you who do not know me, and if you don't know me, I, I can't wait until this ridiculous pandemic and all of its craziness calms down so we'll have a chance to get a cup of coffee, to get to know each other. Uh, it's such a delight for me, first of all, to be a part of KI, but to be able to to stand in for Amy today and to teach Torah study is really just uh, so lovely. And so I'm excited to, to be here. This week, we are on the portion of Vaera. Now, who can tell me using the spacebar technique, what is this portion all about? Okay. The plagues I guess on Egypt. The plagues. Yes, we're on the first first eight or so. Um, and it's important because, and we're in the triennial piece, this is specifically about the plagues and about the starting up and about that cautiousness uh, that uh, Moses is still holding, right? That God has to really say, do this, have an action, make a stance. And so we're going to read a little bit together and we're going to kind of investigate part of these uh, plagues. So hold on one minute. I will pull up. The text itself. Okay, we're going to start at chapter eight. And if I can have somebody please read, I would greatly appreciate it. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, hold out your arm with the rod over the rivers, the canals and the ponds, and bring up the frogs on the land of Egypt. Aaron held out his arm over, whoops, you jumped, over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same with their spells and brought frogs upon the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to remove the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, you may have this triumph over me. For what time shall I plead in behalf of you and your courtiers and your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses to remain only in the Nile? For tomorrow, he replied, and Moses said, as you say, that you may know that there is none like the Lord our God. The frogs shall retreat from you and your courtiers and your people. They shall remain only in the Nile. Okay, so I'm not sure if it's a party trick yet, but Moses gets the frogs to overwhelm. And Pharaoh, in a state of overwhelm, says, okay, fine, just just take the frogs. Uh, I promise this time I'll let you go. Uh, Please just take the frogs. And Moses, already a little weary at this point, because we're actually on the third plague, is like, wait, 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 wait. When exactly? Give me more information, because uh, we've already done this dance a little bit. What's going on here? Yes, Barry. Um, I think I heard somewhere that uh, this was actually um, an educational consequence because uh, the first pharaoh that enslaved uh, the Israelites uh, was afraid of them becoming too numerous. So uh, this punishment is, okay, I'll give you something to cry about. Here is an animal that uh, when it starts to brood, it doesn't stop and uh, they should remain only in denial, but then now they will overwhelm your kingdom. Uh, So a little bit of, you want some perspective. Let me give you some perspective. Here's, here's the perspective of what it would look like for them truly overgrow. Okay. So, so we're at this point of the frogs and and I wanted to stop here for a minute. We're actually going to keep reading. And I want to ask, does this sound like a plague? Does it sound like a plague or a nuisance? And I ask that because I think we are now today, particularly today, able to differentiate a little bit more with that word plague and what it means to have a pandemic and to be overwhelmed by something, overtaken by it. There's different words here. So do we think so far, and to remind you, we would have begun with uh, the little party trick of the snake uh, from the staff turning the Nile into blood and now the frogs. Do we think this is a plague? Well, last year around this time, COVID-19 was just nuisance in, in the news, like December, January, February. We just heard about it. It wasn't a plague yet for us in the West. 
in the Western Hemisphere. And then it became a real plague. Okay, so part of this could also just be the scope and reach, and that maybe there's something to be learned here about uh, those first initial warning signs of when something has the potential to become plague and how we might take it more seriously. Exactly, yeah. Firstly, we don't take these things seriously, and then they become a real in our lives. Uh, perhaps um, the first few plagues were not really real. Well, also, there's an issue of the importance of the Nile in Egypt. I mean, the Nile is the, is the heart of Egypt. It is the source of all the food, uh, particularly in the Nile Delta, which is a lot of swamps, which is where uh, a large a number of people live. And being everything being infested by frogs just interrupts everything, the same way our lives are being interrupted. So it's not just frogs. It's, it kind of gums up the works of food and all of society. Okay. Yeah. And let's zoom out a little bit. Uh, Has anyone here ever heard that the story of the Exodus is really more of a political liberation? It's supposed to be a liberation of a people that helps to establish uh, this narrative of the people's history, right? Anyone ever heard that uh, kind of notion? People often talk about Exodus being the first story. Now, the problem is, if it was just a political liberation, we wouldn't need 10 plagues. God could just deliver one pandemic and it would literally be done. The people got to leave because they were freed. So if it's not about just the political liberation, then what would it also be about? What would the purpose of 10 plagues be? Right. It would be a lesson. It's a lesson of what though? The human nature, the fact that when things are bad, you pray to God, but when everything is good, you become, you know, uh, complacent you become uh, stubborn okay but it does this connect to last week's where we we were really talking about this um, idea and notion of God testing people's belief in God and so that this could potentially uh, be an indication or another test of for people to understand God's strength and, and God's presence. Um, well, I think that's a huge piece of this, right? I think a big piece of this is the actual, the question is who is supposed to be learning the notion of faith in this, in this story? Is this about the Egyptians recognizing that the God of the Israelites was real and that they needed to understand the faith? Is this a story about the Israelites needing to know that this God that they're going to buy into and believe in has their back and there's a real relationship who is supposed to be learning this establishment of God's uh, scope and reach through these plagues? And that's a big question that I think we're going to answer as we go um, a little further. And, and to clarify, we started on 8-1. Uh, the triennial starts on 7-8. Seven, 7-8 eight. Seven, eight to 8-1 basically goes like this. God tells, uh, God tells Moses, do this. Moses and Aaron do that thing. Uh, then the Egyptian magicians do their thing. And then they're like, ah, that cancels out. Let's try it again. And the reason we start at 8-1 is that now we're starting to get into a space where we're going to look at, um, where we're going to look at what else is at play here? When does it really click? And so let's, we're going to keep reading. Hold on one second. We're going to keep reading. When does it say that, uh, the Lord hardened the hearts of Pharaoh. Where does it say that? Yeah, to show that the the Lord was uh, more powerful, so he could keep. Uh, he hardened the hearts, so he could more, put more extreme plagues on. Right. Well, we're going to get there right now. So let's start here to uh, verse eight. Who would like to read Daniel, verse eight? Daniel. Yes. I just, just you raised a question. I don't think you answered. And that was what, who, who's, what is this about? It's a, whose strength is being shown. And I just wanted to add, if, if you look macro, macro, the Pharaoh was the most powerful person on earth and supposedly a demigod or a god. Right. And this is a story of how Yudhe actually defeats the Pharaoh and is a more powerful 
God. At least that's how I read it. Does that answer the question? That's 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 one way to read it. But but actually, the reason I, I left the question unanswered was I think we might discover a little bit more about this question as we read on. Have but I? what I want, but what I want you to keep in your mind is this notion of I want you to keep discerning who are these plagues for, and that's going to be a bigger question at the end of our study too. Yeah, Susan. Well, um, the notion that hit me when you asked the question was that this is a story for all time. So the 10 plagues are for us, and they're for us every year at Passover, and they're for every Jew that ever comes forever. And so if you just have one plague, what kind of story is that? Okay, so on the narrative side, like, this would not be the epic buildup if we didn't have the plagues. I think that's fair. But for a second, let's put aside that piece and really dig into then, like, the the soul of what the writing is trying to get to. So let's read a few more lines together and then we'll explore further. Uh, who would like to read verse uh, eight? Then Moses and Aaron Pharaoh's presence and Moses cried out to the Lord in the manner of, matter of the frogs, which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. And the Lord did as Moses asked. The frogs died out in the houses, the country, the country yards and the fields. And they piled them up in heaps till the land sank, uh, stank, <laughs> pardon me, not sank. Um, where are we? Oh, but the, when Moses, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he became stubborn and would not heed them as the Lord had spoken. And then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, hold out your rod and strike the dust of the earth and it shall turn to lice throughout the land of Egypt. One more line. And they did so. Aaron held out his arm with a rod and struck the dust of the earth. The vermin came upon man and beast. All the dust of the earth turned lice throughout the land of Egypt. Okay, just kidding. Two more lines. I uh, want 14 and 15. Then we're going to stop and digest this. All right. The magicians did the like with their spells to produce lice, but they could not. The vermin remained upon man and beast. And the magician said to Pharaoh... This is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart stiffened and he would not heed them as the Lord had spoken. Okay. Whole bunch of more context here. That's why I want us to get through this piece. So first of all, when the frogs stop being a plague, what happens to them? They stink. <laughs> they get, they die, they pile up and they stink. Does that feel like God removed the nuisance of the frogs from the Egyptian people? Made it worse. <laughs> maybe made it worse. Maybe made it a little bit more like, okay, we can handle it. We can just clean it up. But certainly gave them another round of trauma and, and uh, grief with that, which, by the way, do we even count that as a plague? Right? We don't say frogs, then dead frogs. Right? They should be <laughs> two different plagues because it's just as obnoxious. So many frogs that the earth sank. So many frogs that the weight of the frogs caused the earth to sink. Stank. But wasn't it no, that both. they stank, not sank? I well, read no. stank first, and then I said, went back and it said stank. Yes, you are correct, and I'm thrown off by it for a second. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yes. No, no, the piles up until the land stank, but so much so that it overwhelmed, um, overwhelmed the notion of, of like the space. Daniel? Yes. You know, it seems to me that what's happening is Moses is trying to establish his street cred and have Pharaoh take him seriously by <laughs> doing all of these sequentially like this. Is that possible? Is that a possible interpretation? Say that one more time. It, it seems that Moses is trying to establish his street cred with Pharaoh. Well, is Moses trying or is Moses really just falling like God's trying to establish Moses' street cred for him right now? Right? I think it's Moses saying, look who I represent. Like okay. Giuliani saying, I'm representing Trump. I'm representing God. Take me seriously. Don't screw around with me. Okay. Yeah, that's a space I hadn't even looked at, but there is certainly a side that Moses is kind of just getting into his confidence with how to kind of manage all of this. Uh, that's certainly, that's certainly a piece of it. 
Um, the other thing that I want us to kind of focus on in that notion, though, is that not only is the plague not removed, it's just shifted into a new nuisance, by the way, which God makes that choice, not Moses on that one. But after that, what's the next plague? God says, Moses, tell Aaron to hit the dust. And from the dust, lice happens. So let's break that up into a few pieces. First of all, dust. Where else do we have the notion of dust in the space of something being created? A golem. Okay, but, but somewhere else that we've already had in our tour. Wasn't, what, wasn't it in, in uh, Breshit where Adam mm-hmm. was created from Adam the- is created from dust. At least one of the stories. Right, but the greatest of God's creation, humanity. The same stuff of the earth as the lice right now. And what happens when they hit the dust and it becomes uh, lice that goes all through the land of Egypt? The Egyptian magicians try their best to duplicate it and realize they can't. They can't duplicate this. And so they say this phrase, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart stiffens and he would not let them go. Now, first of all, for those keeping track of God stiffening Pharaoh's heart, it's something that actually makes me very uncomfortable. Um, we're not there yet. Right now, Pharaoh's being stubborn. Later, God says, you want to be stubborn earlier? I'm going to keep you stubborn. But right now, Pharaoh is being stubborn. But before we get there, this notion, the, this is the finger of God. That is a really interesting phrase. This is the finger of God. That phrase only appears two times in our entire Torah. Anyone want to guess what the other time is? That's a big guess, so it's okay if you don't. But think about a moment that would be incredibly meaningful and impactful and altering for our narrative as a people. I'll give you a hint. A hand or a finger might also be involved in writing. Ten Commandments. It's just great that you have such job security. <laughs> like we we learn this each no, year, no, and we're like no, the, oh no, it's a pretty big book that 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 uh that that Torah. No, that's exactly right. We are talking about the Ten Commandments. The only other time this appears is in Exodus thirty-one when we're describing the two tablets inscribed to the Ten Commandments. That that comes from the finger of God. That's the only other time that phrase is used. Now, the rabbis make it clear that the divine narrative makes no mistake. And so if the divine narrative makes no mistake, why do you think this phrase, the finger of God, is the same phrase used here and in the Ten Tablet, in the Ten Commandments? And it was, it was like fate. It, 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 was, it was predetermined. Okay. Was written. Fate, fate there's this notion fate? in the fate. Okay. It was. It, it, there's this notion in Middle Eastern um, popular, you know, thinking that everything that happens in your life is it was written before you were born. Okay. So, so that so some things in life are part of this narrative that was written before time, and and some of it is your choice, but most things are predetermined all right so there's no point in there's no point in resisting when it's clear that this event was was set forward before the beginning of time okay so so yes uh yes there's a notion of fate here but but i want to move a little bit towards if the narrative is trying to tell us that the weight and awe of this moment should be anywhere near the awe of our Ten Commandments, we have to investigate a little bit of why. Why would these two things be parallel? Why is it the plague of lice is what stumps the Egyptians? We turned the Nile into blood, but lice is what causes them to crumble to their knees. I think it's because... It's a profound moment in which the the Egyptian um, clerics, because that's really what the magicians were, they were also their their clerics, recognized the greatness of God. But why? Why is it lice? Now, yes, for anyone who's ever had to comb lice out of a child's hair, this is a plague. But 
why is this plague, this plague that all of us can handle, this plague that has a bunch of companies with cheeky names like the lice ladies and all kinds of other stuff who can come and really take care of the problem, a shampoo and a special comb can literally solve this plague. So why is it this plague that causes the Egyptians to fold and recognize God? Maybe it comes out of dust like the first man. It's like, it's huge. Okay, so we have that, uh, that connection. An act of creation. So we have that connection, yes. But, but, but let's think. Use your, comp, use your modern sensibilities. What is it about lice that's different so far than the Nile turning to blood or to the frogs? This it's, attacks it's, individuals' bodies. It lice is, attacks the individual. Yeah, it's inf- actually their body. The other ones are outside their body. It inf- infiltrates into your homes. Okay, so okay, so so it's it's intrusivity, right? That it goes, it's in your hair. Okay, what else? The Egyptian magicians couldn't replicate it, right? But what? But like, why do you think that was? Because God did it. Okay, this answer it's going to be like ah, because and and again, this is my perspective here. What is think super basic? Frogs, blood, and then lice. The first two are visual. You can see the Nile turn to blood. You can see frogs overwhelming your land, and then you can see them piling up. And yes, with a microscope or or magnifying glass today, you can see lice. But we're talking about Egypt thousands of years ago. Lice was the one that was invisible. Suddenly, they hit the earth, and everything is scratching and itching, and they can't see it. It's literally a plague and it's there, but the magicians can't replicate it because the magicians aren't replicating blood as water or frogs. They're replicating the visual. It's, it's a trick. It's an illusion that they are able to replicate, but you can't see the lice. Now, isn't that interesting that the thing that you can't see suddenly becomes the scariest thing? the tipping point for the people. Oh, we can replicate this. We can show you that maybe God isn't real in this one. I'm out. Lice, the guy hit the ground, the earth, the earth that we trust, the earth that we grow crop from, the earth that we know to brick to make brick and mortar. Yes, today we can see lice. And if you know to look for it, you can see it. But if you're in the dusty desert and they hit the ground and lice is created, you would have to go digging through the hair of your cattle to find the lice. You would have to go digging through your hair to see it. It isn't something that you can visually see the same way as frogs or as the blood of the Nile. Yes, Dana. So just a little tiny sidebar. So how does that connect to the other time the Torah started, you know, the, the, finger, the finger of God with the Ten Commandments? That's we not a tiny. That, that? That, that's that's not a tiny sidebar. That's a good sidebar, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get there without a doubt. I promise we'll make that connection. Okay, fair enough. But 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 hold the thought, and if I don't, definitely call me out to make sure I do. So now we have this idea, and again, bear with me. I know if you really go digging, you can find the lice. But if you're talking about a grand moment in which you just make the lice appear and everything is itchy, you can't really see it. Much the same way, by the way, that germs today. If you get the right microscope, can you see germs? Certainly. But can I see them right now? I mean, maybe if I take a black light out and I go through an area, you can see spots of germs and debris and other things like that. But, but you can't see it with your visual eye. Which leads me to the question, what is scarier? Something that you can see right in front of you or something that you know is in front of you, but you can't see? I think uncertainty is more frightening. Also, remember one of the big differences between yud heh vav and all the other gods at that point. I shouldn't say all the other gods. The other gods was that they, you could see them. They, they, were, right. they were idols. They were physical manifestations. The big revolution of yud heh vav is yud heh vav is invisible. It's That's an invisible right. force, unlike Pharaoh and the other and the pagan gods. And now we're starting to see the narrative's slow movement into, I think, I think exactly why our narrative puts so much weight on this plague and this is a pivotal shifting moment. 
does faith require visual? Now that can be very hard for people. And, and Mehmet, you actually just wrote in the chat exactly where I was definitely going to go with this. How, it's almost eerie to me, how much it's calling me out that the thing that I can't see ends up ultimately causing more fear and panic and, and devastation than a thing you can see. I've literally said since the beginning of this pandemic, I think more people would have taken it seriously if COVID-19 was a raging fire outside their window. If they could only see how scary it was, everyone would take it more seriously. But it's it, the fact that it's invisible, the fact that we know it, 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 that it has taken lives, we know that it's devastating, but we may not feel it in moment to moment, makes it that much scarier. The fact that the visual of the mask has changed the way that people actually understand the severity of what's going on. Part of the psychology behind the mask is that when you see everyone wearing a mask, you know there is something to be afraid of. And when this all started, when COVID-19 was rolling out, when it was first just that virus somewhere else, and then when it suddenly hit us hard, it was so hard to fathom being locked in your home when you looked outside the window and it was beautiful. When you looked outside the window and you thought, why can't life operate? Because there was this invisible thing that brought us to our knees. Now, take that same feeling, that feeling that all of us experienced, though, I mean, it was what, nine or 10 months ago. So I don't even know how many of us can truly remember the depth of that feeling when it first happened and apply it now to the Egyptians of 4,000 years ago that don't have microscopes and don't have actual doctors who are telling them what to do and what not to do, who don't have the necessary resources. Remember, they avoided a famine. It was a 14-year-in-the-making process. They didn't have the infrastructure to jump into place and, and protect their people. Lice, if all of a sudden everything around you starts itching, where's the line drawn? What can't this God do? It wasn't a magic trick. It wasn't right in front of them. It was scarier than that. It was something going on in front of their eyes they really couldn't see. Now, here's the trick. Faith and fear both come from the same space. Fear of the unknown, faith of the unknown. Fear of what we can't see, faith in what we can't see. You see, there's a choice in this process. And the Egyptians who didn't have an, a, a, an opportunity to have this relationship with a true divine presence, they didn't have that choice. They only had one side they could go to, fear. And so going back, uh, Alex, to your question from, from before, going back, I think that actually this narrative is supposed to hit both sides at once. It's supposed to be a lesson to the Egyptians that fear may not be the only way to be driven. And by the way, uh, as Bert pointed out earlier, if the Pharaoh is supposed to be a demigod, if you remove fear from their engagement model, what does that do to Pharaoh's power? Forget the rest of the plagues. If you stripped fear from the Egyptian mindset, what would that have done to Pharaoh's power? Officiated it. Yeah. It would have annihilated it. And last week with the Torah study on Saturday morning, I shared that, you know, we, we spend so much time thinking about how terrible it was of this Pharaoh who made this decree to kill the first, uh, to kill the sons. But we never stop and recognize how dumb it was of Pharaoh to want to do that. That was dumb. He was annihilating his own workforce. He was removing the opportunity for there to be progress in his own infrastructure. It was a bad idea. He wasn't a very smart guy. But we don't focus on that. We focus on something else entirely, which is the, like, the heinousness of it. But if you keep that in your mind, that like also, quite frankly, that thing that he did was just kind of dumb. And you use that context when looking at the examples that are going through now in the plagues. You, you kind of have to stop and recognize that there is a lesson to be learned for each group here. Now, I want to go a little bit further, and I want to ask our Talmud why people would be so afraid of something that comes from the ground. 
And in the Talmud, there is this notion uh, in Brachot that explains that uh, there are demons, but that demons cannot be seen from the naked eye. To see them, you have to go through some type of filter system, some type of faith system, some type of, and, and by the way, they go off on a tangent about uh, using uh, the placenta of a black cat, burning it to ashes and placing it over one's eyes. I don't think we need to go down that route, but I do think the notion here is that the rabbis even recognize evil does exist. Devastation does exist. But the difference between true devastation and nuisance is what we can see and not see. And so it's a really powerful idea here that what really brings them to their knees is the fact that they cannot rely on what they can see in front of them to bring them comfort in this moment of panic. That is a really interesting and powerful thing. Because again, if I was to write down the plagues and tell you, you, people of 2021, have a choice. All your water can turn to blood. We'll make it hail incessantly. Uh, frogs will overcome the land, or you can have some lice. You would probably just choose the lice, get the shampoo, and take care of it. But that's because, actually, we have a deeper sense of faith because of our exploration of science, because of what we know today because of the medical profession and the other parts of the scientific world that have given us more answers to the world around us, which goes back to an original idea. Are science and faith connected? For many people, they like to divorce these two notions, that science and faith are completely separate ideas. But the reality is that science is an exploration of the world around us. It's seeking out big questions. And scientists will tell you, we'll never discover all the questions. In fact, if we were to just simply weigh them and go back to the question of faith, which goes back, uh, Dana, to the question of how it's connected to the Ten Commandments, right? This, this, this guiding morality that actually has a give and take of faith with God and, and the people of Israel. What do you think there's more of in this world? The things we have discovered or the things that are yet to be discovered? Which one do you think is greater? I think it's probably the arrogance of most times that believe we've discovered most of the stuff and that we know where things are at, when in reality, it's always 100 years from whenever it is, people look back and say, oh yeah, well, that's when they believe that. Right, which, which means? Blank. Yeah, we don't, we don't know how much we don't know. We don't know how much we don't know, but I can say with almost certainty, there is more we don't know than we know. I would agree with you. Okay. I think. So if, yeah, if that's the know. case, that's the beauty of it, right? If that's the case, and there is likely more unknown than known, that makes the unknown greater. And it this is God. Yeah, these are the unknown unknowns, to quote somebody or other. Yeah, okay. Bert. Bert, all you have to do is read some stuff about particle physics, some stuff about cosmology, some stuff about the inability to combine the two into a unified theory. Um, look at dark matter. Look at all this stuff. There's an incredible amount that we we truly don't know. Um, right. And And in fact, a lot of it, in the same way of lice is not able to be visualized. You can't visualize, you know, quantum mechanics um, or things of that, except for Schrodinger's cat. So one of the, one of the classic expressions of this is from one of the Woody Allen movies. I forget which one it was where he was frozen. And then he wakes up many years later and they peel off the freezer wrap from him. And they talk about what it was like back, I think, back in the year 2000. And he says, oh, yeah, that was when they thought chocolate was bad for you. That was Sleeper. Was that Sleeper? And yeah. A great line. The, the, Meister, the ice cream and, and cake was bad for you. Right. So, okay. But now take this notion. This is exactly the point. If there is more unknown in this world than known, that tells us that the unknown is greater. And if you ever sit and have a problem 
figuring out how you're supposed to believe in God, why this connection or that connection exists. Remember that God can just as easily be the unknown of the world. That pursuit of science is an ever-going exploration of trying to understand more of the gift of the space of the earth that God gave us, of the universe that God created, but that God may very well be the unknown. And since we are never going to hit a tipping point of knowing more than we don't know, that always makes God the greatest force on this earth. Even if you would rather say God is the unknown, God is the all power, all knowing, what that really means is God is everything yet to be discovered, which makes science part of what actually keeps faith ongoing. And so many of us see science as counterintuitive to faith, but it's not. And that very notion that every time we discover something new, we also discover more things we didn't know means that our discovery of the world, our curiosity, our pursuing the world around us actually gives strength to God. It adds to the everlasting, all-knowing, boundaryless aspect of God. So now take that back to the plagues. If we know that, and we know that our faith also requires us to believe in something that we can't see. That makes things that we can't see also all the more scary. Because there's a fine line between faith and fear. And sometimes that line gets a little bit blurred. Lice was scary to the Egyptians. COVID-19 is scary to us. Other things that we can't see are scary to us. And we have to both have faith that we can keep exploring the world around us and find the answers to solve the problems, the things that we can't see. And you know what? A healthy dose of fear. Because that's okay too, to have a healthy dose of fear that keeps us safe. Isn't the Hebrew word, there's a Hebrew word that means simultaneously in English, both awe and fear. Ira. Yeah. And, and they're, at least in English, they're two completely different things, although awe can lead to fear. But awe is a very, in a sense, a positive thing that recognizes the unknowable and the distance between us and God. And fear, I mean, fear is what makes you afraid. But in right. Hebrew, it's the same word. But yes, think about telling someone or teaching them to wash their hands. Yeah, if my son goes outside and plays in the dirt, it's very easy. Wash your hands. But if his hands look clean, but he's been outside, how do I explain that there's germs there? You have to get them there by telling them that this is truth, which over time builds a notion of faith. If you want to believe in unknowns, the scary things or the glorious things, the amazing things, the awesome things, or Bert, to use the English version of that, the awful things, both awe, right? We have to have faith. This plague is a turning point for both parties. The Egyptians realize this is not a trick. This is not a magic trick. This is not an illusion. This is a God. This is something deeper because we can't see it, but we still know it's there. And the Israelites realize not everything is a grand gesture. Sometimes the most awe-striking moments are ones in which we know exactly what's going on in front of us, but we can't see it happening. They know something is itching all the cattle and all the Egyptians. They just can't see it. And that is a pivotal moment in shift. And the reason that the finger of God, that phrase is used to connect that moment to that of the Ten Commandments, is that though the Ten Commandments are handed down as physical manifestations, they require a tremendous amount of faith to follow those rules those rules that will separate them from other peoples, those rules that will make them closer to the divine. The notion is that the faith that we have to follow the Ten Commandments is very, very similar to the fear that we have of the things we can't see, but we know they're real. And that is a really delicate balance that adds a depth and a richness to our faith. And for me, this year when I read this piece of Torah, I had a very different appreciation for the notion of studying the plagues. Because in some strange way, studying these terrible acts that, that an entire people 
end up having to bear the burden of also added some newly uh, formed faith for me to remember that the amount of things going on in this world right in front of my eyes that I can't see just proves how beautiful and glorious this world is. And I'm going to have to sit with that interesting discomfort that I, I learned a level of faith through this fear. But I think that's the point. And I think that's a genuine piece of our experience. And I think that's why lice, of all things, lice is what made the Egyptians realize, and maybe the Israelites too, realize this was a legitimate relationship, this was a legitimate God, and this was something worth, you know, the ongoing pursuit. Could you define what you mean by faith? For some people, faith is the irrational belief in something that's unprovable and not true. But I know that's not how you mean it. Well, I mean that partially. Can you prove that God exists? Can you prove that God doesn't exist? Isn't it just as powerful that I can say that I know God exists because you can't prove to me that God doesn't exist? And it might be irrational. In fact, a cynic can probably pick apart a majority of my faith. But the reality is, if I stand in confidence knowing that there is more out there and that I have faith, a irrational, rational, hopeful, wishful, uh, trusting integrity that I just know it's real, then that's okay if someone else finds it irrational. You can't take it away from me. And that's a really interesting little uh, vulnerability of faith. And make no mistake, this portion should prove to you that having faith does make you vulnerable. And the question that we have to ask is if we're okay with that vulnerability because of the, the love and the richness and the, the, the things that it adds to our life. Because there will always be people who can scrutinize and criticize us for our faith. Um, Rabbi? Yes. I've got a question. Um, art is boils in the same category as lice. They tend to show up no cause or the, 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 the um, anybody back then could understand. Uh, but, the, you know. Yeah, I think the cause of boils would be in the same category. I'm not sure if boils themselves would because you see them. Once they're there, you know what they are. Again, do you really think the, the Egyptians were itching their heads and had someone else looking on their head and digging through to find out what these little black speckles were and didn't just think it was dirt because, you know, they didn't have tile flooring back then, right? So, like, they, they had they, – there was dirt and there was debris in their world. So the lice really is so much more invisible. The cause of boils was definitely scary. But once they manifested on, in front of you, you could see if someone had boils. Go back to thinking about COVID-19. If COVID-19 caused boils, do you think we'd be as afraid to walk around outside? Or do you think we'd say, if I see someone with boils, I'm not going to go near them? It's the invisible things that make us fearful, the things we can't see that make us uneasy, because there's no easy, clear, logical way for us to avoid them, to rationalize them, to strategize around them. Um, but yes, boils do fall in a middle category because they appear, and that in itself is really uh, nerve-wracking. I saw a couple other hands go up. I want to give people a chance to uh, share their thoughts. Also, uh, who thinks that this is crazy? Who's like, Rabbi, I just I genuinely don't agree? Because I'm okay with that, too. Because this is part of faith, that there be an individualized definition, that you hold your faith in a way that works for you. Reconstructing Judaism believes that there is a different way for each of us to engage. I'm sharing with you the aha that I've had from reading this material this year. I also look forward to the time when every time I read Torah, I don't somehow see a pandemic. Because it gets a little exhausting. And I'm so happy for all of those who have started to get the vaccine for the fact that all the rollout is happening. But the vaccine in itself, fear and faith. You have to have faith that it's going to work. And some people have fear that it won't work or that it might have, uh, you know, side effects or anything else. These two will always live hand in hand. 
But when we're pushing towards something greater, when we're worried about the safety and the well-being of an entire society, suddenly fear often will overtake, I mean, faith will overtake that fear just a bit more. I think uh, what you were saying about science and faith, uh, you know, we talk about the law of gravity, okay? That uh, if you drop, if you release something, that it will fall. And yet the law of gravity really is faith. I mean, we believe that it's always going to be. Now, part of it is it's never been proven otherwise. But there's a whole branch of philosophy called epistemology, which is about the different kinds of truth. And as you pointed out, there are truths that are demonstrable, you know, truths that it's happened every time, so we assume it's going to happen again. And there's other truths like God or uh, I love you, or my heart is broken, that we accept as, quote, true when they're said, I guess, but are not provable in the sense of scientific experiment. And I think it's amazing when you were talking about the invisible, that the invisible God, yod heh is still around today, 3,000 years later, and all of those physical gods that were there, whether they be Egyptians, or whether they be all the sites, Jebusites, Hittites, etc., are not. And maybe it's just a, 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 um, a testimony to the strength of the invisible. Maybe the invisible is just visible to each person differently. Look, the largest skeptic in the world at the time of the Egyptians couldn't have denied lice, because as soon as their heads started itching, it was done. Now, if we're lucky, for us that pursue this truth, for us that study on a regular basis, it didn't take a pandemic to believe in something greater or larger. But for some, this pandemic, this thing that I never would have wished upon any of us, may come out with a fruitful aftermath of a new dedicated, uh, uh, rededicated sense or renewed sense of faith. Because it really, really reiterated that you can't always just see it to know that it's there. And again, I never would have wished for it. But if that's one of the byproducts that comes out of this pandemic, that we're in a space where we can remember again that faith is a choice that we have and faith is something that we can renew in each and every moment, at least there will be that that comes from it. Yeah, David. Rabbi, doesn't Aren't you really saying that for time immemorial, mankind needs faith to survive mentally and spiritually? And no matter what science brings us, there'll always be the unknown. So we believe that life is better than we're actually experiencing at the moment. I want you to add one piece to that. I actually believe that science enhances the experience of faith. Because when we discover something new and and byproduct always discover more unknowns from the thing that's new that we discovered, we recognize how glorious. Look, science started as as uh, as a feature of the church. The church said, we don't understand this world that God created. Go pursue it. Now, later down the line, people divorce these two notions by saying, if you believe in one, then you couldn't believe in the silliness of the other. And for those who have uh, studied Bereshit with me, I constantly say the story of of Bereshit is a narrative form of the Big Bang Theory. The two are not different. They're just said differently. But science has always been a tool to strengthening faith. So not only are you correct that that humanity requires faith, But go further, that as the pursuit of science continues, it adds, it enhances our faith. And that faith and fear are close, but we're not in danger of tipping from faith to fear, as long as we can keep appreciating and remembering the awe-inspiring nature of what's around us. Alex? I can understand having more faith as we learn more about science or as science reveals things, but I don't mean to get dark, but what about this notion of evil? And again, I always, you know, I've thought such a great deal about the Holocaust and what, and I've heard survivors that 
kind of went either way, it renewed, it restored their faith, or it, you know, they don't believe in God anymore after that experience. And so I'm finding it's not science that, um, you know, gives me pause or nature that gives me pause when these kinds of things happen, such as lice or COVID. It's really human, the human capacity for evil and the human capacity for greed and power and destruction that gives me fear personally. So sure, that's that fair. Mean? Yes, but you know what also uh, tends to help me is then seeing moments of pure divinity between the way humans interact with each other. When people step up and help out when there's a moment in need, when people turn around and act in ways you never expected, there is evil on this earth. I'm not making an argument for that. I believe that we are made with Selim Elohim because we are tormented by recognizing both sides. What makes us in the image of God is that you can hold that there is negativity and positivity in this world at the same time. But I think that the reason that I am convinced that science can enhance faith in that sense is that we also have a choice how we react to it. And so I, I do agree with you. I see those things too. As Frankel said, yes, <laughs> man starts for meaning. Yeah. <laughs> the the right? choice of how we. That's exactly right. And so that is the choice that we have. I see science to be proof every day that this earth is the most wonderful thing in the world. The gift that we were given from the divine. People can call it whatever they want. They can see it in whatever way they want. But that's why faith continues to be enhanced for me. And that's why we come together. And that's, by the way, would this be of important of a material if we didn't hear the different thoughts in this study? If we didn't know that other voices were engaging with it differently, wrestling with it differently? Part of this, this faith is knowing that we're not in it alone. And so, yes, the invisible things sometimes bring us to our knees. But that also means the things we can't see can sometimes pick us back up. That faith in something larger might be what we need to get back up, to go back out, to try it again. And so if you take away one thing from Torah study this morning, you take away that you have the choice when you're presented with the evidence of something existing that you can't see. You have the choice how you want to pivot. If you want that to build towards more faith, or if you want to choose to step into fear with that. This has been a trying and exhausting 10 months. But when I saw people starting to get their vaccine, when I see numbers start to change, when I see people uh, finding new ways to engage and be together and to not allow this to completely bring us to our knees as a society, it brought me more faith. And that's a choice I made. And that's a choice that each of us can make. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.